turn again to, in your Bibles to the book of John, chapter 10. This is week three that we've been in between the verses 1 and 21 of John, chapter 10. We're going to finish up. We're going to finish up uh, this week with that section. But we're only going to look at one verse in that whole section. So, uh, so just one verse, a verse that you know well, and then we'll move on to verses 22 through wherever we go next week. So the book of John chapter 10. I'm just going to start. I'm not going to read the whole thing. I'm just going to start with verse 1 to give us a reminder. And Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs in by another way, that man is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him, the gatekeeper opens. The sheep hear his voice and he calls his own by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all of his own, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. A stranger they will not follow, but they will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of the strangers, or the voice of strangers. This figure of speech Jesus used with them, but they did not understand what he was saying. So Jesus again said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who come before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep... Did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. A few more verses. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. We'll stop right there. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. I'll reference a few verses, but I want to focus on verse 10 focus on verse 10 where Jesus says the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy but I came that they may have life and have life abundantly so here's my objective today so that you can stay in the same lane with me and the objective is to understand the true meaning of abundance as it relates to one true gospel the gospel of Jesus Christ Again, that's to understand the true meaning of abundance as it relates to the one true gospel, the gospel of Jesus Christ. And this is why this matters, because we're all familiar with the term abundance. We all understand what abundance means to a degree. You might come to my house and you might see this or that and you say, well, he's living in abundance. I might come to your house and say that you have this or that. Maybe you have more Rice Krispie treats in your pantry. And I say, man, you're living in abundance. Abundance is strongly relative. It's strongly relative and also strongly subjective. Depending on where you are, who you are, where you've been, what you've been exposed to, you operate most likely under a very particular, maybe even a different definition of abundance. And so it's worth investigating for just a little bit because if Jesus is going to say, this is the reason that I've died is so that you would not only have life, but that you will have more heaped onto that life. You see, there's a different, there's a distinction here. There's a distinction in what Jesus is saying. I've come that you may have life, but I don't just want you to have any old life. I want you to have a certain type of life. I want you to have an abundant life. And this is the purpose for which he came. And Jesus does not fail in his attempts. Jesus is successful in what he does, namely in purchasing your abundant life. Every one of you here 
Christ, if you profess Christ, he has died so that you might have abundant life. And some of you might be looking and saying, well, I don't know that I'm experiencing that abundant life. My life has been kind of a struggle. I've had this hardship with parents, or I've had this hardship in my mind. I've had this hardship with school. I've had this hardship with, with, uh, with, with physical illness or something like that. And I would submit to you that your approach to abundance is faulty. Because what is guaranteed to all sheep, all believers, is that he has died so that you will live a life of abundance. Now we have to be careful with that word because it gives way to a particular gospel that is rampant and that's the prosperity gospel. And I get it. I get how someone can approach this text and say, see, he wants you healthy, he wants you wealthy, he wants you wise, he wants you to live in this extravagance, he wants you to have Lamborghinis and private jets, he wants you to have all these things, he wants you to have, you know, a big family where no one's ever sick, where you're never sick, he wants you to be happy all the time, he wants you to have the best of friends, he doesn't want you to have any kind of altercations in your life, he wants you abundant and I can see where someone would arrive at this text not to mention all the others that are taken out of context but at this text and say see Jesus is securing that for you and that would be an encouragement to you because I can come to you if I was a health and wealth guy and I could say see listen listen he wants you to have abundance and it's very easy to take that and say oh if you're not living it your faith is weak that's the problem that's the problem that's why you're not living in abundance it's not that Jesus has failed but you're failing And the problem with the health and wealth prosperity gospel, the problem with the word of faith movement is that it focuses entirely on self. There's no room for Jesus. There's no room for what his atonement actually secured, actually did. It's all about self. It holds up a mirror and says, this is about me. That's that's the health and wealth prosperity gospel. So I want us to understand the true meaning of abundance as it relates to the one true gospel of Jesus Christ. And Jesus says, the thief comes only to steal and to kill and destroy but I have come that they may have life and have it abundantly so I want to draw out two distinctions in this text just two two distinctions the first distinction is this I want you to see the distinction between the thief that Jesus speaks of and the good shepherd that Jesus references makes reference to regarding himself so seeing the distinction between a thief and the good shepherd that's our first of the two distinction again Jesus says the thief comes only to steal and to kill and destroy. And he mentions the thief or a robber two other times in this passage, one being in verse 1, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door but climbs in by another way, that man is a thief and that man is a robber. A thief, by virtue of his title, is what? Someone who takes something that does not belong to them, right? A thief. It's interesting that Jesus would use this kind of terminology to explain the Pharisees here. They're thieves. And he said, and this is what a thief does. A thief comes in by another way. A thief is not looking to come in in the way that's been provided for him. The only way. Christianity, by the way, is extremely exclusive. You understand this. It's extremely exclusive. Because Jesus himself is the most exclusive in terms of how to be right with God that there ever was. When he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no man comes to the Father except by me or except through me. So there's an exclusivity in Christianity, make no mistake about it. And Jesus is pointing to that now. He's saying, I'm the door, but if someone tries to come in another way, if you try to be a part of this fold another way, you're a thief and you're a robber. And it's weird that he would use this language. I don't know if you've ever had something stolen from you. 
I've had some hard, bad things happen to me, you know. I've had people gossip about me or say bad things about me or lie about me or push me or punch me or whatever. But probably what bothered me the most in all of my life is when someone stole something from me. I remember when I was a little bitty, I'll tell you, his name was Jeremiah. I won't tell you his last name. But I promise you, he stole my bicycle. And I accused him of it for years and years and years and years. And he denied it. And finally, I let the bicycle go. And that bothered me. But what has bothered me the most of all the things that have been stolen is I had this trailer that was sitting on the side of my house. I didn't even want it anymore. So the thief kind of did me a favor. But the fact is, I didn't offer it to him or her. Equal equality here. Could have been either, right? So it really bothered me that someone stole my trailer. It bothered me. It irked me. I'm like, I would rather you punch me in the face. I would rather you talk about my mama or my daddy. Don't steal my stuff because that doesn't belong to you. So when I think of a thief, it really bothers me. It really bothers me. Who does Jesus refer to as the thief in this passage or as the thieves in this passage? He's referring to the Pharisees. He's talking about the Pharisees. Let me walk through some stuff again. They're going through another door. They're trying to find another way to be at peace with God, to be right with God. He makes it very clear. Anyone who comes in another way, they're a thief and they're a robber. And you might say, well, how, how is that a thief or a robber? They're, they're wrong. They're trying to go another way. But how does that make them a thief or how does that make them a robber? What's happening is they're trying to push their agenda. They're pushing their religion. They're saying Judaism works is the way to go keeping of the law this is the way to go and this is their agenda that's the emphasis that's what they're pushing the made one of the one of the major problems with that or any other way or any other religion is it robs god of glory jesus is saying i'm the only way to suggest to suggest that there's another way is to minimize the door. It's to minimize Christ. It's to minimize his glory. It's to minimize his grace. It's to minimize these things. So in a sense, it is robbery. And that's what Jesus is saying here. Judaism is the other way that verse 1 is referring to. They were trying to steal the glory for themselves. They were essentially trying to rob God of his own glory. They were pushing an agenda, a, a religion, another door. That will do what? It will steal your hope. It will steal your hope. He says it will steal, kill, and destroy. And he uses these words very intentionally because we know that any false religion, anything like that, serves to steal or rob you of your joy. Notice the volatile language that Jesus uses to describe these things. He doesn't just say, well, it's just not good what they're doing. He says, what they're doing is this. It will steal, it will kill, and it will destroy. I mean, these are strong statements that Jesus uses. And there's going to be a beautiful symmetry to follow this on the, very, on the contrasting side of things that we're going to see in just a minute. But the volatile language, steal, kill, and destroy, any other way, any other door, any other religion will steal your hope. It will ensure your death. And more than that, it will bring surety to, eternal, to the eternal dispensing of God's wrath steal kill and destroy you see it won't just kill you that's bad it won't just kill you it will destroy you you will not just die in your sins but you will spend an eternal death under the wrath of God that's what Jesus means when he says another door another way 
will steal, will kill, and destroy. So there's a distinction between a thief and the good shepherd because what Jesus said was completely contrary to what the Pharisees were saying or what they were promoting. Jesus said, I came that they may have life and have it abundant. What is the very opposite of life? It's death. Jesus comes to bring life, but this false religion brings death. So there's this beautiful contrast. The good shepherd gives to others as his always belong to him. The thieves do what? They take what doesn't belong to them. That's what a thief does, right? A thief takes what doesn't belong to him. But what does the good shepherd do? The shepherd gives to you what never belonged to you, but belonged to him. You say, what do you mean by that? Multiple times in the scriptures, specifically Revelation 7.10, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Psalm 3.8, salvation belongs to our Lord. Your blessings be upon our people. That's just two of many references where it says salvation belongs to our God. And Jesus comes and he brings life. He's the opposite of the thief. He's the opposite of what the Pharisees were and what they were pushing. And he's proving that by saying, I am the door, I bring life. And the salvation that belongs to the Lord is the salvation that he's giving to those who believe. It wasn't yours. right? This just gives support and strength to the idea that you don't earn it. You weren't good enough. You didn't do anything for it. That's the, whole, that's the whole deal, is that it was graciously bestowed on you, and it wasn't yours. Salvation belongs to our God. The good shepherd, he brings, he gives life, he brings life, then he adds to that life out of the riches of his grace. Here comes the abundance portion. It's not just, I've brought you out of darkness, but then it says, you're brought in to the kingdom of God's beloved son. You see where the abundance starts happening, right? It's like he didn't just rescue you out of darkness. That would be good. That would be great. He didn't just give you life, but he made it so that your life would be a certain way. The Greek word for for abundance, literally, because it's kind of strange. I bring this up because it's strange. It literally means superfluous, not necessary. And you think, superfluous, that's kind of a maybe derogatory. Oh, they're... What they're doing is just superfluous. You know, that's really not necessary. That's overkill. Don't think in those terms. Think in terms of he did enough. He did enough by rescuing us. It was enough that he gave you life. That's what you needed. That's what you needed. But then he says, but that's not where I'm finishing. I'm going to heap grace upon grace. I'm going to lavish grace upon grace on your life. That's what abundance is. That's what the good shepherd does. That's why there's such a strong distinction between the thief who comes to steal, kill, and destroy and the good shepherd who comes that you may have life and have life abundantly. But we have to be careful. We have to dig in a little bit to this idea of abundance lest we go the way of the prosperity gospel because, again, I can see how people arrive here and say, well, he promises abundance. You know, it's not just salvation, but it's other things. It's it's, it's, it's my billion-dollar home. It's my Learjet. It's my Armani 
Versace, all these things, clothes, all the nice clothes. I won't start naming stuff because I will fail. Wrangler. Okay, I, I got that. I got Wrangler, Levi Lee. I got those things, right? American Eagle. Those are, that's, that's, that's my speed. You know, we have to be careful how we define these things. The point is we are given so much more than what we need. That's just grace upon grace upon grace. So that's the first distinction of two. The second distinction is this. Seeing the distinction between, and follow me, the prosperity gospel and a gospel that promises abundance. The prosperity gospel and a gospel that promises abundance. A little bit of a play on words there, but you see that there's a difference. In the scriptures, there's a gospel promising abundance. That's John 10. That's the root. That's the heart. That's the, the whole premise of John 10 is there's a door. There's a shepherd. He's good. And he's come that you may have life by giving his life. The great exchange. His abandoned life for your abundant life. Stolen from a, stolen from a famous preacher. Right? My, my, the, the, the phrase I just turned there. So I want to see the distinction between the prosperity gospel and the gospel that promises abundance. But if you will indulge me for just a second. I want to kind of walk you through a little bit of a history of the prosperity gospel. Maybe give you a definition of the prosperity gospel. Because you've heard this from us before. If you watched American Gospel with us, that's what American Gospel, the documentary, is all about. But I want you to hear this because it's extremely prevalent. This is not some benign issue. This is not an issue that we're just saying, ah, it'll pass. It won't. It hasn't in decades and decades and decades. It's gaining ground. It's captivating more and more and more Americans, not just Americans, but people all over the globe. So here's a definition of the prosperity gospel. The prosperity gospel, also known as the health and wealth gospel, or by its most popular brand, the word of faith movement. You see, it's packaged and repackaged in a way that is more palatable for the unsuspecting follower of Christ. And this seems like it's a good thing. If I come to you and you're ignorant, if you're a new Christian or a Christian that just has, quite frankly, just been lazy all your life, and you don't know any better because you haven't pursued greater knowledges, if you've never, greater knowledge, if you haven't moved beyond milk to get to meat, you're that person sitting here, and I come up and I wax eloquent on all these verses in the Proverbs that talk about how you can live this kind of life, and I go to all these Old Testament passages which they like to land on and take out of context, and then I take you to Jesus' very own words, and I say, see, he wants you to have abundant life. You will walk away from here thinking exactly that, that the litmus test of God's favor over you is your fortune. That's it in a nutshell. I don't know, when you drive into Greenville, I, I start seeing it a good bit when I'm, when I'm almost, almost out of Georgia, but definitely when I get into Greenville, I see all these big billboards. You know, and it's usually, it's usually, uh, uh, you know, it's usually a, a pastor and his wife, you know, in those, in those scenarios, they consider them both pastors, and, they, and it says Word of Faith, Word of Faith Church. I mean, there's no secrecy to it. I mean, it's, it's, it's out there. And if you ever drive by and you see that, and you see where it says Word of Faith, this should put a trigger in your mind. Red flags should start going off and saying, okay, what is this? Word of Faith is a term given to the health and wealth and prosperity gospel. So... Again, the prosperity gospel, also known as health and wealth and prosperity, by its most popular brand, the Word of Faith movement, is a perversion of the gospel of Jesus that claims that God rewards increases in faith with increases in health, with increases in wealth. Simply put, the stronger your faith, 
the more you will be given materials. The more you will be given material possessions. And you might say, well, I've read in the Proverbs before. It says this and this and this and this. The Proverbs is wisdom literature, by the way. It just makes common sense that if you make good decisions, a lot of times good things might come from that. It does make sense to me that there is somewhat of a gospel correlation with prosperity. If I'm not in Christ and I have, I'm a derelict father, if I'm not in Christ and I have a horrible work ethic, and then all of a sudden the Lord radically changes me, I have new life because of new birth, my work ethic changes. Guess what happens? Maybe I get a raise. Maybe I get a promotion. Maybe I get a different job. Maybe I get on this great career path. Why? Because God has changed me. He has made me new. And with that came a lot of newness, one being a work ethic. So God has done these things, and there is some materialistic prosperity that's coming my way. But it's not a sign of God's favor. God gave me his favor in Jesus. He gave me his favor in Jesus, and it's just grace all along the way. So this is how you approach the Proverbs as wisdom literature. It just makes sense. If you use wisdom, maybe there will be a good byproduct that comes out of that, or a natural, or a good response, or good dividends. One author explains it this way. In the forefront of the Word of Faith movement or the prosperity gospel is the doctrine of the assurance of divine physical health and prosperity through faith. In short, this means that health and wealth are the automatic divine rights of all Bible-believing Christians and may be procreated by faith as part of the package of salvation. Listen to this. Since the atonement of Christ includes not just the removal of your sins, but also the removal of your sickness and your poverty. Christ died that you may be healthy, that you may be wealthy. And make no mistake about it, the proponents of a prosperity gospel, they don't mean that you'll be spiritually healthy or that you'll have riches in your inheritance that God has set aside for you in First Peter. That's not what they're talking about. They're about earthly, physical manifestations of prosperity in all shapes and forms. You say, where does this come from? Where does it come from? Well, to kind of put a, a pin where you see this really start to gain traction, or really its birth, is it from a guy named Oral Roberts. You ever heard of Oral Roberts University? Oral Roberts University, or Ro Oral Roberts con is considered the father of modern prosperity teaching. Faith healer, evangelist, became so popular that he made a school, Oral Roberts University. A strong catalyst in the movement of the prosperity gospel was a guy named Kenneth Copeland. Now, there's a lot of them, but Kenneth Copeland is a main guy that you still see now today. Kenneth Copeland was a chauffeur and a pilot for Oral Roberts, but also a student of Oral Roberts. And so he was mentored by Oral Roberts, or at least at the school, and that's how Kenneth Copeland became a health, wealth, prosperity, word of faith movement teacher. And it's heresy of the deepest and truest form. I mean, it, 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 it radically changes the doctrine of Christ, the doctrine of humans. It's, it deifies humanity. I mean, Kenneth Copeland will look at you in the face and say, you know, we are gods. So it's much more than just, hey, God's favor on you is indicated by your bank account. It's much more than that. Just in case someone says, well, I can overlook a few of those things, but what about some of the doctrinal things? It's way off the charts doctrinally. 
So these men, Kenneth Copeland, these men, Oral Roberts, paved the way for the televangelists who became famous in the 1980s, including Jim, Jim and Tammy Faye Baker, Benny Hinn, Pat Robertson, Robert Tilton. Today's best-known word of faith, prosperity gospel teachers are people like Joyce Meyer, Creflo Dollar, T.D. Jakes, Joel Osteen, Paula White, who is a spiritual advisor to the president, FYI. So these are the large proponents of the word of faith movement the prosperity movement and there's tremendous danger here one one theologian writes this just by showing some of the dangers some of the entrapments he says many false gospel well i'll get to that in a minute many false gospels are quickly dismissed as being benign i said that a minute ago but this is not one of those things statistically speaking a large portion of of the world is subscribing to this a large portion how many thousands of people attend joel osteen's church uh attend the the <laughs> whatever it is that Joel Osteen leads on a Sunday. How many thousands and thousands and thousands of people, and all of them, generally speaking, are subscribing to this prosperity gospel? It's dangerous because it preys on man's natural penchant or bent towards consumerism and materialism. At least that's my natural bent. Prosperity gospel doesn't adequately adequately prepare you for suffering. Here's some of the here's here's a few tenets. Here's a few things just to know that's 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 inside the prosperity gospel. All right, that that causes us great reason for concern. It doesn't adequately prepare you for suffering because it says if you are suffering, you don't have faith. Because no one with faith would suffer. It doesn't teach you to deny yourself but rather it teaches you to indulge yourself. That's what it teaches you. It forsakes biblical context in order to fulfill a worldly agenda. This is why it's so dangerous. Here it is. It places heavy emphasis on the self while marginalizing the greatness of God. It turns everything on itself. That's why the prosperity gospel is so dangerous. It ultimately moves you away from the glory of Christ. It ultimately minimizes the work of Christ. It says, ah, he's a door. He's not the door. That's the problem with the prosperity gospel. The question is, how do I disassociate the prosperity gospel with the teachings of Jesus regarding abundant life? Okay, I hear that the prosperity gospel is bad, but what do I do about what Jesus has said? How do I reconcile that in my own mind with what I've heard about the prosperity gospel and what Jesus actually teaches. And it comes down to understanding what Jesus means when he talks about abundance. Because abundance is, again, relative when quantified through a world's system. It really is. I don't know how many of you have been overseas. Some of you have. I've only been to South America, but I've been to South America about four times. And I've seen poverty. I've seen poverty. I hadn't been to Haiti, and I hear Haiti's way worse compared to the places that I've gone, like Peru and Venezuela and Guatemala. But it seems like everywhere you go, you can find some place that's more poverty-stricken, that has become more impoverished, that's suffering to greater degrees than the place you last saw that was suffering to a, the greatest degree that maybe you had ever seen. Relatively speaking, someone in Guatemala might look at someone in Haiti and say, man, we're living in abundance. Or Haiti might look at Guatemala or look at Peru or look at any other place in the world and say, wow, they're really living in luxury. And then you got Americans who come along like, whoa, they're really living in the lap of luxury because compared to the rest of the world, we are rich. So it's extremely relative. No one in this room can look at each other and say, I don't have abundance. Materialistically, you can't say that. If your house, is, if your house or apartment is 200 square foot, 
you know, O'Neills. If it's 200 square foot with four walls and a baby and one on the way, and that's all you got, you know, you are living in prosperity compared to the rest of the world. You really are. Materialistically, you are prosperous. Not to mention your health, not to mention, you know, all of these other things that factor into what the world looks at and says prosperity. To someone, someone else is always living in abundance. And to someone, someone else is always living in less abundance. So health and wealth cannot be the metric by which we understand abundance. It can't be. It can't be. We must start at ground zero, and that is the promise of Christ in scriptures. A, that he came, that you may have life and have life abundantly. To whom did he make this promise? The sheep. He said, I lay down my life for whom? The sheep. What did he say in Ephesians 5? Husbands, love your wife as Christ loved the church as I gave myself up for whom? For her, the sheep. Sheep, bride, however you want to word it, it's the same thing. He says, I have laid down my life for the sheep right there in verse 11. So who are they? The sheep, all those who are in Christ, those who belong to Jesus, those whom he has purchased and those whom he has sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. Those are the sheep. Therefore, all who are in Christ are promised abundance. And you might say, well, that could just mean eternal abundance. I would say it's both and. He has died that you may have abundance now, but that you also will have eternal abundance Ultimately, the eternal abundance, just to give you, just a, just a cut to the closing here, just to give you the punchline of all this, is you don't just get life, you get Jesus, right? It, can we all agree that there's really nothing greater in abundance than the fact that we get Jesus, right? Heaven has no need for a son because of the radiance of the glory of Christ. We get Jesus, Look at Jesus in Revelation where they sing a new song because the Lamb comes in. All heaven, all worship stops for the moment. They focus their eyes on Jesus. That's, that's what we get. That's who we get for eternity. That's the sheep. All who are in Christ are promised abundance. According to the prosperity gospel, though, all of the sheep should be healthy and wealthy. If we're taking this in context, it is applying explicitly and exclusively to the sheep so that means all all the sheep should be healthy and wealthy according to the prosperity gospel they should be living in a consumeristic and lavish life a life of materialism as a sign of God's favor i.e. favor equals fortune and this would be okay if the scriptures and life itself didn't point us the other direction. You see, the context of John 10 is salvation. It's ground zero. Jesus says, I lay down my life for the sheep. There's an order of these things. Abundant life comes as a direct result of Christ's sacrifice. An abandoned life for abundant life. Abundance is rooted in the atonement of Christ. So how can we say that abundance that is categorically, exclusively reserved for sheep, how can we look at those who would deny Christ but maintain riches, wealth, health, and all of these things and make sense of that? 
If the metric to measure God's favor is health and wealth, but the context is that abundance applies to sheep, what do we do with the vilest of offenders who live long lives of extravagance and good health until the ripe old age of 102? Like Hugh Hefner. Hugh Hefner, who is worth upwards or was worth upwards of about $110 million, which is nothing compared to a lot of people in this world. Hugh Hefner, founder of Playboy Enterprises, who made his money through the exploitation and the objectification of women. Whether they agreed to it or not, it's still exploitation and subjectification, uh, objectification. And you know what? It's called sordid gain. Sordid gain. He was reaping the benefits, as it were, or, or as, as he would call it benefit, from the sins of these women. He died at a ripe old age of 91 with nothing but money in his bank account. Adolf Hitler, you may not know this, but he was worth somewhere at his peak around $150 million. For one of the cruelest and worst acts of genocide the world has ever known. But the health and wealth and prosperity gospel says this abundance is for all. That's the favor. That's the, that's the sign. That's it. So we would have to conclude that God is favoring Hitler. He's favoring, he's favoring all these people like Hugh Hefner and Adolf Hitler and so many others. But it can't be. That can't be the metric. Under Hitler, there was this operation called Operation Reinhard, just one of many horrible things under his regime. March 1942 to November 1943, killing 1.7 million Jews in that short time frame. All this to say that clearly wealth cannot be the metric to determine God's favor. But let's turn from the richest of the vilest of offenders and look at the saints of God who endured much for God. Let's look at the contrast of that. All the sheep are promised abundant life. And we're going to zero in on this definition of abundance. But we can't say it's health. And we can't say it's wealth. Because what about so many faithful who never experienced health and never in the grand scheme of things experienced wealth? People like Polycarp, a second century Christian bishop, martyred sometime between AD 155 and AD 167. He refused to burn incense to the Roman emperor. So they burned him. What about John Wycliffe, known as the morning star of the Reformation, 14th century theologian, translator of the scriptures, translated the Latin Vulgate into common English. He was persecuted for rejecting papal authority. He was hated so much that while he was persecuted, but he wasn't a martyr, after he died, they exhumed his body. They hated him so much, they exhumed his body and then burned it along with all of his writings. What about John Huss, a Czech priest burned at the stake in 1415 for heresy against the doctrines of the Catholic Church. Charles Spurgeon notoriously struggled or infamous or whatever, notoriously struggled with depression. The prince of preachers who the world heralds now because of his intellectual and preaching prowess, a man who had hard times getting out of the bed. And oftentimes they had to have people come and help him to get up out of the bed so that he could go and preach or just go and have his day. What about Adoniram Judson, one of the most famous missionaries in the world, missionary to Burma in, in, uh, in 1813, worked for 38 years among the Burmese people and underwent unspeakable suffering. 
Many of his children died. Two of his three wives died before he ended up dying. He was dragged from his home one night, deemed a spy because he was a Westerner. While in jail, while one of his wives were alive, they didn't have any money, they didn't have anything. And shown great mercy or pity by the jailer, the jailer would let him go out in the streets and beg women, nursing women, to feed his kid because his wife's milk had dried up and they had no way to feed their kid. So, so fortune is a sign of God's favor? If that's true, what do we say about missionary and spiritual pioneers like these men? 38 years suffering unspeakable horrors all for the sake of the gospel and someone would dare to say maybe his faith wasn't strong enough someone would dare to say you don't have faith because Christ promised you abundance you're not experiencing it because you're weak or because your faith is weak Judson fell into a battle of deep deep depression which led him to what one writer calls solitary asceticism and self-mortification not just Adoniram Judson, but David Brainerd, one of my favorite missionaries to read about or read his diary, American missionary to Native Americans in the mid-1700s. Although being one of the most influential missionaries in the world, he was given to what one scholar calls a broken body, a despairing mind, and a lonely soul. Listen to just a few of his journal entries. This is a man who turned the world upside down. This is a man who, who, who modern and ancient missionaries Sing the praises of this man because of his faithfulness, even though he died before he met 30 years old, if, his, if I recall history right. A broken body. Listen to this journal entry. This is from David Brainerd. In the afternoon, my pain increased exceedingly and was obliged to betake myself to bed. I was sometimes almost bereaved of, of the exercise of my reason by the extremity of my pain. His despairing mind, he wrote, Brainerd suffered several depressions. He often called his depression a kind of death. There are at least 22 places in his diary where he speaks this way, specifically of his misery and the freedom from it. For example, Sunday, February the 3rd, 1714, he wrote, My soul remembered the wormwood and the gall, I might almost say hell, of Friday last. And I was greatly afraid, and I should be obliged again to drink of the cup of tremble, which was inconceivably more bitter than death, and make me long for the grave more unspeakably more than my hid treasures. And he was given to a lonely soul. He writes this, most of the talk I hear is either Highland Scotch or Indian. I have no fellow Christians to whom I might unbosom myself and lay open my spiritual sorrows and with whom I might take sweet counsel in conversation about heavenly things and join in social prayer. And finally, the Apostle Paul, whom you know better than the rest of these men that I've mentioned. Sufferings, beatings, incarcerations, but yet, but yet, managed to write the world's seminal, seminal letter, seminal content on joy to the church at Philippi while he was under suffering. And why? Why would he do this? How could he do this? Because abundance is not summed up in health and wealth or prosperity. If abundance is not summed up by health and wealth, then what is abundance and how do we sum it up? Abundance is this. 
everything that is graciously given in addition to the new life we have in Christ through his gospel, that's abundance. He came that you may have life, and not just life, but a certain type of life. Abundance means that you don't get just to be rescued from darkness, but brought into the kingdom of God and made a what? Co-heir with Christ. He didn't have to do that. That's the superfluous aspect of this abundance. He's given things to you that you most certainly don't deserve, and even things that you don't necessarily need. They're just gifts. It's just grace. You needed salvation, absolutely. But heaven and being with Jesus is still heaven and being with Jesus, even if he didn't grant that we would become co-heirs with Christ. That's abundance. Abundance is that God continues to shape you into the image of Jesus. He didn't just rescue you like this just block that doesn't look like anything. He could have taken you all the way looking like this block, but no, along the way, he's chiseling things away from your life that don't look like Jesus so that you will will look like more like Jesus. It's abundance. Abundance means that you have an intercessor and you have an advocate before God in Christ Jesus. It means that you're not just a sheep that now belongs to a flock, but that you have a good shepherd who personally cares for and tends to all of your needs. That's what abundance means, just to name a very, very small few. But listen, none of these factors apply to the lost world. None of them. The lost world doesn't have a shepherd. They have one they follow, but they don't have the good shepherd. They don't have abundance. They can't have abundance because abundance is specifically reserved for the sheep. Abundant life is rooted in Christ's atonements. It is a divine abundance. There's an inseparable correlation between the good shepherd laying down his life for the sheep and his coming that we may have life. So maybe you're a follower of Christ in this room And you feel that you haven't experienced the abundant life that Jesus speaks of. Maybe you struggle to find joy in your circumstance. Because I think that's a part of abundant life. Whatever hardship you face. You say, where's my abundance? I would submit to you that maybe you're pursuing an abundance that is not defined as biblical abundance. Maybe you're pursuing something that's not divine something that's worldly, consumeristic, materialistic. Maybe you've been coerced by our culture into thinking that abundance is more about temporal things than it is about eternal things. It happens to us all the time. Our joy is so easily dictated by the ebb and flow of our culture. Our joy is so easily derailed or dictated by how our team is performing, <laughs> by our bank account, you know, by whether or not my wife gets home in a good mood or in a bad mood or whether or not your wife or your husband gets home in a good mood or a bad mood ba- ba- sorry bad mood sorry <laughs> so it's it's this crazy 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 deal that we're so easily given to but these men that i mentioned earlier among all of them there are two common denominators first they all suffered all of them experienced suffering And the second common denominator is that they all had a joy that drowned out their suffering to the degree that they could keep pressing on towards the prize, no matter the snare, no matter the hardship, and no matter the pain. And that is abundance. You don't just get life, but you get Jesus. And that's the heart of true abundant life. Let's pray and we'll be dismissed. 
Lord, thank you for the abundance that you've given us. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for your mercy. Father, help us to see that what we have truly is abundant life. Lord, even if we're suffering, Lord, there's a joy that transcends the greatest of earthly suffering. And that's abundant life. Lord, all the trappings of our life that are representative of your grace, in addition to the salvation that you've granted us, Lord, that's abundance. Lord, it's abundance that really matters. Lord, it's an abundance that, that you have offered to us. An abu- it's an abundance that, that, that you've been so gracious to give us, an abundance that we couldn't earn. But out of your grace, you lavish these things on us according to the depths of your riches of your grace. Lord, I pray that you would protect us from any notion of a prosperity gospel. Lord, we would see that the true gospel of Jesus Christ, the fact that he laid down his life for sinners, and that whoever would believe that he not just died, but that he was resurrected, that he's alive and that he's well. Lord, we understand that, as Austin mentioned, that you have, that, that other people were resurrected, but they all met death again. But Jesus did not. So that, One reason among many, many, many other reasons. It makes Jesus exclusive and specific, special. Deity. And so, Lord, as Jesus, being the heart of the gospel, being the gospel himself, may we never be drawn out or coerced by the world or by culture or by our natural inclinations or proclivities towards consumerism or materialism. And may we never, ever, ever May we never live by the formula that, that, that favor equals fortune. Or may we lay hold of the fact, evidenced in our life, that the sign of your favor in us is giving Jesus to us and rescuing us from darkness. Lord, you can't have great, greater favor for your ki- children than you do. And I pray that that would be a reality Lord, that propels us to deeper, greater, grander worship. Calls us to be more vocal when we are silent. To be more intentional when we're not. Pray that you do these things for your glory. In the name of Christ, we pray. Amen.